I'm Father Scott Vanderveer, and this is Profiles of Endurance. Many of us have a childhood that does not necessarily coincide perfectly with the direction that our life is heading in the future. It might be because our parents had different interests than we had, or careers that were very different than the career that we chose, or it could be that the spiritual background that we were raised with is not necessarily what we choose for later times in our life. Today's guest, Debbie Kirsch, grew up in a home where religion wasn't talked about much and spirituality wasn't something that was a high priority. But when she came to attend college in Albany, she found a whole new lease on her spiritual life. She's here to talk with us today about what it was like to go on the journey of faith, not knowing what the future would hold, and what she sees now looking back over 40 plus years of Christian practice. She also had no way to know when she started the journey that part of her life would be spent with some serious limitations to her mobility. Debbie spends most of her time now in a wheelchair and that has changed her experience of what it means to live a full and vibrant life. But as a practicing Christian, there is no other option than to live fully. As Jesus says, I came that they would all have life and have it abundantly. Debbie is here to talk with us today about living an abundant life on life's terms. And Debbie, we are so grateful that you are here with us today and so eager to hear your story. Why don't we start by letting you help us get to know you a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your family and about your growing up years. Thank you, Father Scott. Um, I consider that I grew up in kind of an ordinary and typical in most ways, uh, middle class, maybe lower middle class in the beginning, American family. Hmm. Um, my dad was a teacher and um, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Of course, we didn't have that phrase back then. Yeah. All, the mo- all the moms stayed at home. Um, <laughs> that was It's hard to imagine what it was like in the 50s, I, um, thinking about it. You know, you couldn't go shopping on Sunday. None of the stores were open. Yeah. I mean, it, just the whole thing was different. Yeah. So um, I, I'm the oldest. Uh, my dad um, got in on the tail end a couple of years of World War II. And uh, came home and and got the got to college on the GI Bill, so mm. um, that's how he was able to teach. And um, when uh, my sister was about six months old, I'm the oldest. Um, we moved out of um, our my grandmother's house, big big old Victorian house mm. with a couple of apartments, um, actually in Queens, New York. Mm. Uh, but not a very dense population. So I never went to school there or anything, but all my relatives were there. My, my dad is the youngest, was the youngest mm. of uh, six children. So I had all these older cousins, tons of cousins. And um, on my mom's side, I really didn't have any relatives. She grew up without a dad um, who died supposedly from wounds from World War One. Right before she was born, so that was that was the situation. I have I had some second cousins and a, a great aunt and uncle on that side, but tons of relatives yeah. on uh, my grandma's side, and that 
family was, I guess, important, and that continued to be a close relationship. We must have, that was, I think that was how we spent a lot of Sundays going back to grandma's house. And, uh, you know, there were always a lot of cousins running around. So a very 1950s and early 60s intergenerational way of oh, living. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And my, but my mother's mother, uh, my Nana lived with us and we adored her. Mm. My sister and I both adored her. And, um, and thinking back, I can't remember any time I, I heard she and my dad argue. He loved her too. So it was, it was really very idyllic. And in those days, I know people say this, but it was true. Um, we lived, you know, in a neighborhood, uh, and, Doors were unlocked because moms were home and kids ran around. It was a dead-end street, too. Kids ran around and rode their bikes, and and I know it sounds (laughs) too good to be true, but it it seemed like it was that for for quite a while. When we think back back to that time, one of the things that that churchgoers often talk about is that the churches were full. They were packed. Was, Was faith? important to your family? What was your faith experience like nope, growing up? not at all. I was going to say, I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's because, why? You were raised in a, it was a, a Jewish family? There was, well, I guess I would have to say, culturally, um, maybe, I, I want to say less than 10%, less than 5%. Uh, was Jewish. We just weren't raised in anything. We were, you know, we were American and um, didn't, didn't, I, I don't think I was ever in a temple, maybe until my, I'm trying to think of whose funeral. I never went to a funeral until I was an adult. Wow. Um, you know, when my other grandmother died in my teen, or my grandfather first, in my teens, um, they never, they never had the kids go. Somebody always stayed home with the kids, even though I was older by then. I was in my young teens. Uh, I'd never been. I, I guess I'd been inside a temple once, maybe, um, but it just it wasn't anything we did. And there wasn't anything. any peer pressure to do that, even though it was the fifties. Yeah, no, they really didn't. Uh, no, I don't remember any at all. Now uh, a neighbor. One neighbor was a big Italian family, and I played with the twin girls that were in that family a lot. And my best friend from second grade up through college was an Italian Catholic, but she never talked about anything. It's just so funny. You know, we, we could talk for an hour on the phone about school and boys and homework. But, and and she would they used to let the... Um, I guess it was just Catholic. Catholic kids go for religious education early, one day a week. Right. And that seemed, you know, of course, everybody was jealous. Everybody else was jealous that they got out of school. But um, in a in a vague sense, I loved school. I, I just loved it. So yeah. that really wasn't a problem. But we never talked about anything. I remember at one point when I was old enough to maybe know better, in elementary school, um, there must have been something on TV, and I said something about wondering whether Jesus was real, 
And my mother said, well, of course he was. <laughs> and that was, but that, was, that was all. You know, he was, he seemed part of mythology. I didn't read anything about him. Um, I had a book on Greek and Roman gods and heroes, and he was sort of in that category. Yeah. Well, no, I just did, that, didn't know anything. It's interesting because you had this, this strong family uh, connection. And it might have been that you stayed in the New York metro area to go to school, but you didn't. You came to Albany. What brought you to Albany? What were you What were you here to study? Well, I I was excited about the idea of getting away. So I, you know, I was offered, um, you know, a secondhand car if I stayed at home. <laughs> applied to local colleges, or I could go away, and it was an easy decision. What I thought I wanted to be was a nurse, and um, so I joined Future Nurses Club at the, in high school. And um, but as I said, my mom wouldn't let me be a candy striper. But in they were they were quite good, even though women were still, you know, teaching, nursing, typing, were kind of, secretary were kind of really acceptable professions. Um, still. Uh, the Nurses Club provided at least some alternatives, and there was a program once on medical technology, mm. and that that really interested me. Now you would it would probably be CSI, but um, mm-hmm. that that really interested me, and um, so we looked at a couple of schools that had that, and SUNY did have that at the time that I apl- that I was applying. So that was that was kind of what got me here. Um, although, as I said, I was interested in special education as well. Mm. From working uh, at the camp, I worked three different summers with on Long Island with three different age groups. And um, I'll tell you, I had dreams about some of the children for years, years afterwards. Mm. And um, my parents thought I got too emotionally involved with them. And that wouldn't be a good thing. So that was interesting because my family was never real emotional, my immediate family, or or real demonstrative. But, oh, I loved some of those kids. But anyway, that wasn't something that was, you know, pursued. So, So I came here and with the intention of becoming a medical technologist, but music was important. Music was so important. Um, I remember as a elementary school age child, uh, my mother saying at one point, no humming allowed at the dinner table, because apparently that, <laughs> that's what I was doing unconsciously. Uh... I was sort of always interested in music, but not, not necessarily um, popular music, although I guess in junior high, there's that time period when um, I guess all kids are interested in popular music at that time. It was maybe some of your joy spilling out too, Debbie, you know, you just had that, that exuberance and uh, music is, I feel like sometimes what comes out when the soul words just aren't cutting it. Yes, that, that probably was part of it. And my dad as a teacher, um, he would, he would put on some classical music to grade papers. Ah. And so at first, I, I guess I might not have paid much attention, but, you know, then sort of 
he he used headphones some of the time, but not always. Um, so passing through the living room, you know, I'd say, oh, what's that? I, you know, I'd stop and listen. Oh, what's that? And he'd say, oh, that's Beethoven's violin concerto. Mm. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. Or, or he'd have on something exciting like the Capriccio Espanol by Rusky Korsakov with all the colorful instruments oh. and everything. And I'd say, whoa, what's that? And so gradually I got a little bit of education. And then we we had a music course in seventh grade where I actually learned a lot more, too. And it really, they really spoke to me, I guess I have to say. Mm. And so I started actually my own <clears throat> record collection of, of classical music and started learning before I came to college. So I intended on being a music major and the, de the department, uh, I mean, a music minor, it wasn't a music major here at that time. Ah. And um, just within, so of course I took band. I had played clarinet from age 10. And so happened one of the faculty um, was also a clarinetist and he conducted the concert band. And that was just wonderful. I really threw myself into that. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's where I met, there were a couple of people um, who I became friends with. And there was just something about them mm. that I couldn't put my finger on. And um, so I started I started talking to them. And they started talking to me about Christianity. And I just didn't know what it was all about. And I had encountered a lot of, not a lot, I had encountered some problems that people encounter when they go away to school, um, mm. it wasn't, you know, we didn't live in a co-ed dorm. That, those things came later. Sure. But, um, and, and some academic difficulties, actually, with the science things. And I actually had to drop a science course. Mm. And um, that really kind of put the beginning of the end on my science career. Mm. Um, and then they announced that they were starting a music major and I was just thrilled. I knew right away <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. They didn't have music education because St. Rose had a big music education program, but I knew, I knew I had to take all these music courses. The first one I had taken as an elective just really opened my eyes. It was wonderful. So I declared myself as a music history major, um, even though, as I say, what was I going to do with that? I didn't know at that time. So um, these two people who were uh, in the music department, um, Gary was the first one that brought me to his little church. It's a little, it was a little church um, across from what is now Albany High School and, and uh, something I'd never heard of, the Christian and Missionary Alliance Church. Does that <laughs> mean Christian and Missionary Alliance Church? Would is that the kind of place that we might call a storefront church, like in a little a little building that doesn't quite look like uh, a typical church building? Yeah, it was in a, a little building, and eventually, though, they're the one that that are, that's out on Washington Avenue Extension, and has. Um, 
you know, a signboard, an electronic signboard. Yes, yeah. I, I don't. People see it often on the way to Theresian House or the Italian. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So that was many years later, but at that point, um, you know, so Gary brought me to a couple of of uh, services. What did and you of think? Course, the music was what I liked. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. There's the doorway. Uh, there, there it was. Absolutely. And um, then this other woman, Nancy, who, who played flute uh, in the concert band, um, they must have had some discussion. And uh, so then Nancy invited me to come. And she was going, and other students were going to Loudonville Community Church which had a big program for college, what they called college and career fellowship. Mm. And aside from the morning service and Sunday school, they had Sunday school for all, all the ages. And, um, this very dedicated woman would come and pick up students at several colleges and bring them in for church on Sunday. And, but, you had to go to Sunday school. She came early, Sunday school, and then church. And then in the evening, she would come back again and pick everybody up and bring us for, it was a, a light supper, sometimes a speaker, a short um, time for a speaker, and then uh, church. But church in the evening was just a little half-hour hymn sing, uh. and the, past, the pastor was an accomplished piano player, and he would sit up in front, and you would call out hymn numbers, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, but... Were you, were was, you being drawn into the community? Did you feel like a, did you feel membership? Did you feel like you were, did you feel belonging? Yes, yes, it was like there had been something missing. Ah. And these people were so warming. Some of the some of the adults in the church would periodically invite uh, two or three students over for Sunday dinner after morning church, and then bring them back. I remember that. And uh, yes, it was very welcoming. And uh, but through through Nancy, I met the Christian group on campus which had the funny name, not the Catholic group, yeah. <laughs> but the generalized Christian group, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Yes, which, that's still out there. They're still yeah, out there. Yeah, which came from an English English tradition. InterVarsity um, Christian Fellowship. It is an unusual name. Yeah, you know? it is. Yeah. It is. Not, not an American sounding. and um, But they had regular, I don't know, it must have been Friday evening, little meetings, um, there was an academic advisor, and um, a little group, so I got to know that group, and that's where, uh, second year, I met the uh, woman who became my best friend for all those years since, uh, up until now as well, so, and we were also in chorus together, and um, it was it was in the chorus, which was an elective, um, that I was starting to be exposed to a lot of the great choral music. I had never, that was one thing my parents never listened to, mm. you know, ba Bach cantatas or anything like that. Mm. So I, I had no um, ear for that kind of thing. So I, I did struggle. I struggled a lot with music theory mm. because I didn't have the sound that, 
you don't realize that you would get anybody who grows up in a church gets in their ears. Um, but anyway, uh, so of course, very early on, Nancy uh, gave me a Bible, a little Bible. Uh, and at that point, what was very popular was this little little thing called Good News for Modern Man. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen that. I have seen it. I can picture the font in my head right now. Yeah, with little little stick figures for illustrations. <laughs> yes. And um, I didn't know it wasn't the kind of book you were supposed to start at the beginning and read through to the end. So oh. <laughs> over, over a couple of days, I did that. <laughs> and they, they were all, I think, quite bemused by, by that, you know, because they realized it was unusual for someone to do that. But, um, and so I, I did have lots of questions, um, but it just seemed like it was something that was waiting for me. Um, and I, I think in probably February that year uh, on a retreat, I realized that this was, this was something real and this was something for me. Wow. I really, I really, wanted to be a Christian, and in terms of the way they uh, talked about it and proposed to me, I accepted Jesus into my heart. Which is the language of a lot of um, non-denominational Christian groups, evangelical Christian groups. Evangelicals, right, right, exactly, exactly. So I I, um, was big into that. Now, I didn't talk about it too much with my parents, only a little bit. Um, we had, I, it's so different in those days, you didn't just pick up a phone and call long distance. So we had a, an appointment every Sunday, you know, I would call home <laughs> and it was expensive. It was an investment. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, I would do that and, but it was, I don't know, it was a little difficult to talk about to them, but they knew something was up, um, and I remember, I think I wrote a letter to my mother that didn't go over well. <laughs> is Don't you um, think the fear of a parent is, especially if religion hasn't been familiar to them, that there's no way to tell the difference between religious fellowship or affiliation or belonging and a cult? Right, right. You know, it almost and, feels like they're losing you to something yes. that is controlling you too much. Yes, absolutely. And cults hadn't quite made the news in the beginning, but they certainly did later. Right. And um, and they were, I think they were a little more alarmed later <laughs> when I was working and decided to join a community. But um, I actually you know, but- think our listeners would be fascinated by that because I, <laughs> let's see if we can build the bridge there because, you know, for, for the listeners, some folks, everyone has a different understanding of the way the structures of the Christian denominations work. But of course, for those of us who know the structure, we know that um, evangelicals and Catholics don't always play together well. Mm -hmm. Not always. For example, some of our listeners who may, they may not know a lot about the structure of different denominations, but they know that when they hear someone say, accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, they go, whoa, I don't yeah. know what that means, but I know it's not the way we talk. <laughs> right, right, so I I'm, know. I'm curious, you had something really remarkable happen that built a bridge for you. You were, you were coming of age at a time when there was a very natural bridge 
for people to cross if they wanted to cross over without even realizing they were crossing over mm-hmm. from more of an evangelical way of looking at Christianity mm-hmm. to a little more of a ritual Catholic way. Talk to us a yes. little bit about the charismatic renewal. <laughs> a lot of our a lot of our listeners have heard that term, right, but don't they know. don't know what it means. What is the charismatic renewal and how did you discover it? Well, music, again, music was always so important. And um, this couple that uh, I met through the music department, again, um, Linda had transferred from Oneonta, and she was already married uh, to an RPI graduate student. And they started, um, well, I have to back up. Uh, Loudonville, as I mentioned, had these little evening programs for the college and career group. And it was in the beginning of days of the Jesus people and things like that. Now, you have to remember, this was the 60s, and I was never interested in the hippies or the, you know, political things. Um, I was very conservative. But uh, there was a a radio disc jockey in Ithaca who apparently was a very vibrant speaker. So someone suggested that, and they'll have him come speak. And because of his appeal uh, on the radio, they invited the high school and maybe the junior high group to come in and listen. Well, that was a big mistake because there was such an uproar after that. He was he was too radical for them and talked about the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit uh, being, being alive in the current day including speaking in tongues Mm. well that was just that was just way too much way too much you know gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues and um so unfortunately that started a kind of an anti-holy spirit um movement it wasn't quite a movement but it's scary people got scared yeah people got scared and it was partly because the younger group was, was in there. Mm. So um, at one point, uh, some of the college kids found a church that was more accepting. And even though known to be, I guess, a little more conservative, it was a Lutheran church in Albany. Ah. And so some of them started going there. And I was very reluctant to, to leave Loudonville. But finally, I couldn't. I couldn't abide it anymore. And um, because the college group, college groups in the area had started having their own prayer meetings. And again, it was the music. I decided to take up guitar uh, as a graduate student because I loved the music I was hearing so much and wanted to be able to play it. Mm. So, um, so finally I went over to the Lutheran church and was a little puzzled by all this stand-up, sit-down, kneeling. I mean, it's a liturgical church. But the other thing was, they had communion every week, Ah. which was very different from, uh, and their attitude uh, towards communion was very different. They really believed that this was the body and blood of Christ. And, of course, this was a, a newer concept to me, and um, eventually, I, I, I knew it was true. And so um, there was a big, I heard, had heard about a big prayer meeting that went on 
using St. Patrick's Hall in Albany. Ah. And so um, my friend that I mentioned before, Kathy and I, decided to check it out a couple of times. <laughs> so remember... now the hall that's being used, now this is a, uh, the spirit, this kind of spirit emphasis was always kind of seen as being more evangelical, but now the Lutherans are getting in on it with their, yep. their stronger um, reverence for the Eucharist. And now you're going to a meeting that's being held at St. Patrick's Catholic Hall. St. Patrick's Catholic Hall, that's right. This is something. And... Yes, yes, and it was so, the joy in there just blew me away, the music and the joy, and people people would be um, raising their hands in praise and just singing without words, and it was just astounding to me and so joyous, and in fact, a couple meetings that I went to, <laughs> Kathy and I, well, mostly me, I guess, I sat on my hands because I was afraid they would go up in the air without my wanting them. <laughs> oh dear, it was that was I mean that was funny looking back. Um, so it was just uh, it was just amazing, and I thought this is something I have to I have to investigate. I really do. So um, I you know I went for a number of times, uh, probably throughout that year, and um, then heard that <clears throat> they were forming, a, a had formed a community, and people were talking about trying to live the way the first century church lived with all things in common and sharing everything. And this was so inspiring. Oh, was... well, let's let's pause right there for a moment because that is so inspiring. I know that there are a number of people who find Christianity to be a little bit um, not as credible as it should be because the early church, as it's described in the Bible, mm -hmm. sounds so much more um, family-like and self-sacrificing than when we think of big institutional churches where you go yes. and you're sitting in the 35th pew on the right and no one knows who you are. And it's, so this is, um, this early church model comes right from the book of Acts where yes. you, they described that people lived together. They shared meals in each other's homes. They mm -hmm. had everything in common and they made sure that no one went without everyone right. received from the abundance of all what they needed. Oh yes. Yes. So this is, very, very inspiring. And um, at some point, well, I guess that was later. Um, so I, I just, as I said, of course, again, it was the music. Um, the hair on the back of my head would stand up when they would sing, uh, I am the bread of life, and I will raise him up. It was just, it was just thunderous. It oh. was just amazing, amazing. Yeah. So eventually, at some point, I had you know, by this time I was working and I had, um, had several, several different experiences, uh, living with different people. Uh, first thing right out of college, I lived with a group of teachers and then one of them bought a, a tiny house way out in upper, in Rensselaer County, um, towards the border, way out in the woods. And I tried that for two years <laughs> and then, um, then I lived one year alone, and then by by then, 
let's see, I'm trying to remember my sequence. By then I was, I was ready. I went and talked to um, the leaders, some of the leaders of uh, the community, which by that time had purchased land in Glenmont that had, I'm pretty sure this is correct, at one time been a Jesuit retreat house, and another, uh, before that had been the Corning estate. Mayor Corning was a big political figure in Albany. That's right, mayor of Albany for 46 years, perhaps? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and one thing I should mention, because you said something about this, one of the things that Loudonville did in the summertime was they, they still continued having uh, a more relaxed kind of evening uh, program for, for college and career-age people. And one of the time, they brought in um, a Catholic priest to talk. And, you know, he was up there in his shirt sleeves. And <laughs> we, we were amazed how human he was. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that was just a little, you know, a little taste. Um, but anyway, at, at the point where I was excited about the idea of living in community, um, I talked to one of the leaders who was a, <clears throat> a friar from Siena. And at that point he said, well, there's a, there's a family that's looking to get into a house that another family has been in and, and do a community thing, you know, sign a covenant and live in community with some other people. Why don't you go talk to them? So they lived in Fonda and they were a husband and wife and, two small children and she was pregnant ah. and they had moved up state from New York City and he had gotten uh, he had gotten a nursing degree in New York and was looking to continue his education here and get a job <clears throat> so anyway I went and talked to them and it it seemed like a good thing so um, that pretty soon I moved into this big house in Albany off of, um, actually a little side street off of Delaware Avenue going towards the direction of Del Mar. And uh, at the same time, there were two other people, single people who had done the same, pretty much the same thing. Um, one was my friend Roger, Roger Mock, and the other was uh, my good friend Christopher. So... They were both, um, I think they were both 19 at the time, which, you know, when you when you look at age differences at certain time in people's lives, it can be a big gap or not anything at all. Isn't that true? But yes. Yes. They were 19 and in college, and I was 26, and I had been working already for a couple of years. But anyway, the, the three of us moved in with this family, and Joanne had her baby so we were <laughs> quite a we've got a to pause here we've got to pause here i think because <laughs> if you are somebody who's familiar with the book of acts and you have been to prayer meetings as part <laughs> of this kind of movement it sounds so beautiful it sounds so natural it sounds <laughs> if you are not if you're from the outside looking in you're thinking wait a minute is, is somebody getting rich off of this? Is somebody benefiting from this? Is this a, a one of those strange romantic things going on? What is it? And I'm wondering, well, 
Yeah. A little, a little of, of all of that. <laughs> um, I was the only one that was working full time, and I contributed my entire salary. And I, I guess Roger must have contributed his room and board. Um, he had started at Siena and transferred to St. Rose, and then moved. He moved in with us. And um, Christopher, I, I don't know exactly what his financial situation was. Um, he eventually did go to St. Rose as well. And then we had we had various, I don't know, transient people from in the community come stay with us for different periods of time. And and uh, Willie, uh, Bill Gorman, who later was in the permanent diaconate program, um, he was the dad. He, um, because of his, his uh, nursing degree that he had, his RN, he was able to pick up some, uh, you know, odd shifts, some odd jobs and contribute some money. But I, I think they held the mortgage for the house. Um, I don't remember knowing many of those details, just that it was, you know, it was what we all were striving to do was to live in community and, and, um, Father Allen put the three of us together because we were, I forgot to say that, we were all involved in music. Um, I had asked pretty quickly to join the music ministry, and the, the prayer meetings had gotten so big, um, we moved, they moved to Kenwood Academy, um, which had a very big hall. And so Sunday nights, there was this tremendous group of like three or 400 people at least, that met for, for these prayer meetings. And it was a lot of singing, a uh, little bit of Bible preaching and prophecy, singing in tongues, um, which people felt was led by the Spirit. You just had to be open to it and just open your mouth and something came out. Another place to pause, right? Because for people yes. who were involved... It is it right. It sounds crazy to an outs to some. You know, I think all of us are responsible for our own amount of openness to things. You know, I mean, I think we all come we all come to new experiences with with different levels of openness, and maybe that comes from having been wounded in some way when we were younger, having Mm. been felt like we were duped by something, and Mm -hmm. being very suspicious. Or perhaps it's just that some of us just our comfort dial is set at a different rate by God when we're born, you know, and we only, but I'm just very aware that um, what you went through, what you did in this experience required several things. One, a remarkable amount of openness. Mm. Two, a real desire to live the ideals of of the gospels really live the ideals that Jesus came to teach. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm also aware that it took sacrifice. I mean, for, for a woman in her early in her career to give her entire salary, knowing that she will receive what she needs, but right. it's almost like a form of religious life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It really is. And of course it's appropriate to call it that it's a consecrated life. You don't take vows but you you made your own commitment that was vow-like. While you were there, yes. you were very committed. Yes, and we all were, but that doesn't mean it was easy. Right. It's, first of all, it's not. I, I'm not a, a pushy personality, but it's never easy to have two adult women living in the same household. Sure. So, there, you know, 
there were some clashes. There also were, were some um, disappointments, you know, when I would think I wanted to continue doing some of the things independently um, that I had before, like take off for four days to Maine and go on a little vacation for myself. Yeah. That just wasn't, <laughs> that just wasn't in the cards anymore. Um, so, and, you know, we, we struggled, of course, because of the little kids to try and find times to pray together. That was hard. That actually was hard. Um, and as far as, and, you know, Roger was, was, uh, in school full time. He was very quiet and hard to, hard to get to know. Yeah. And, um, he and Christopher shared, uh, the attic. It was a bedroom in the attic, the third floor attic. And, um, I can remember at least once and maybe more, I would just go up and sit, um, quietly and sort of watch him while he was, he was, uh, had art projects that he had to do for St. Rose. And so he would be doing a painting or a big sketch or something like that. And, um, we didn't necessarily talk very much, but, um, there was, it's so funny because even then there was something spiritual about him Mm. that was beyond (laughs) the ordinary. Um, so, so that worked out. It seemed like it was a long time for me, but it was really not more than over a year, uh, less than two, um, when things just seemed to, to move that I needed to, to separate myself from this group, the family anyway. And, um, cause there was another woman that I met through the, through the prayer meetings who was in full-time, uh, library school at SUNY and she was looking for a roommate. So we decided to get an apartment together and we sort of formed a little group of our own with just a couple of other people, but still, you know, very much involved in the, in the prayer community, um, in the music ministry, I used to go there Sundays uh, and pray and play for the retreats that they held because they held retreats just about every every weekend. And um, so I had pretty much uh, left the Lutheran Church, where I actually I had been baptized there in the in the seventies. Uh. So because of course I had never been baptized uh, before and. Um, so I was not going anywhere. Now, Roger was playing, had found St. Vincent's, and he was playing on Sunday mornings. In fact, when we were living in the household, I used to drop him off at St. Vincent's, but I never, I never went to, went to Mass. Even as a 19-year-old, he was, he was in there. And St. Vincent's is a, uh, is a, a large, uh, very diverse parish in Albany. That, uh, yes, yes. that was kind of known for being um, open and an avant-garde, very diverse, very open. Very. And um, they were always, they had, they had a real spirit there. Uh, welcoming. Ki- welcoming, known for really strong welcoming. Yes, yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say avant-garde. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it was, but I didn't, cons- not, not in the way that people were fearful of. Ah. Um, Father Brian was a huge fan of the music. He really encouraged the music ministry. He had mm. asked um, uh, 
BI Institute was still uh, in existence then, and he asked Gregory Maguire, who was a student who played guitars at the Grotto, um, if he would put together some some of the Grotto people, they call themselves Grotto Group, uh, and put together a folk mass for as one of the masses for Sunday morning. And that, that's how the folk group started. And Gregory is very talented uh, musically as well as a writer. People might know his name. He's the author of Wicked. Uh, Did our listeners hear that? This man <laughs> is the author of Wicked, and he was there with Debbie working yep. in music ministry at St. Vincent's and is still a very dear friend of the St. Vincent's community. Yes. Yes. Oh, he is. He's a big supporter. In fact, I just got an email from him this morning saying they probably are going to come for a Good Friday uh, because they've done that for umpteen, 20 or more years since they've moved. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Good, good Friday service. Um, but uh, he was he write or did write uh, some of the music for Mass, too. And I was just amazed. And um, he was always interested in writing. Uh, he did teach at the VI grade school before he moved to Boston. But um, we were drawn together by both the music and the and the writing. And um, I just I can remember one summer, he and Roger and I. I was the only one with a car, <laughs> and another woman, Margie, spent a lot of time together. Uh, trying to find things that didn't cost very much money <laughs> yes. to, to do because um, they were all uh, poorer than I was. Um, and as I say, I was the only one with the, with the vehicle, but um, I'm losing my train of thought. <laughs> well, Oh, yeah. so what, one, one uh, time Greg was away and, you know, Roger had been playing for St. Vincent's and he was sort of complaining about you know playing alone and I said well I can come too and help out so that was the first time I ever went to Sunday morning mass at St. Vincent's and I I really loved it so I went back the second week and then I this is in the the mid late 70s yes yes and I don't think I left after that (laughs) ever so we're talking now 40 years, 40 plus years. Yes, it's crazy. It's amazing. And you continue, (laughs) you're still, I know COVID has changed some things, but you're still a member of the choir. Yes, yes. At first I played guitar and um, then I did have a chance to play clarinet, which was my first love, my first instrument. Um, We we had a person come uh, from Syracuse named Jim Masso, who was actually an organist, and we didn't have an organist at the time. And um, so he played for the other masses, and he played with us, because, of course, he played piano, too. That was a great addition. Roger is such a talented guitarist. Amazing. Truly. Um, But it's nice to have piano, too. (laughs) Yes. Um, there were things so we we became more there was a sep- there were still separate organ masses um but we became more i keep saying folk group we call it the choir now um as as the music from the catholic church evolved um it became more a blend 
you know, of choral music and quote unquote folk music. I love, I love that you use the word evolved because, you know, one of the things I think all of us are aware of is that, um, like anything in life, a certain chapter of our lives can be very dear and very, um, strong in its, in, in its, uh, flavor. It can have a really Mm. strong flavor. And I would say living in an intentional community and sharing everything in common is an example of a chapter that has a very strong flavor. And letting go of that can be hard because like you said, the time came when it Mm. was more appropriate to move out than to continue. And And then it evolved into something different. And the music that you were a part of in the 70s has evolved over the years. What, I mean, we're, it's hard to put this into a, um, a brief statement. And I know that we, for time, we need to move on soon to uh, another example of you living a spiritual challenge and how you apply what you've, what you've celebrated. But let's, could you put us in, in, in just a, a few moments, maybe what have you seen as someone who came in? At a, at a time in the church's history that was beautiful and exciting and alive, but very particular for the, the era that it was, mm-hmm. how has it evolved in 40 years? Well, I think there was an outpouring of music. I think God, of course, was instrumental in that mm. with Weston Priory and mm. the St. Louis Jesuits, all those wonderful, wonderful songs that just... And then some two really big contemporary composers. Sadly, one of them has, um, how do I say this? Fallen from grace. Has fallen from grace. Thank you. Yes. Um, and that's very sad. Uh, you know, that happened with one of the leaders of the charismatic renewal. He was a priest who eventually had to leave. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, I always wonder, and it's interesting to me, that God can use us when we're so flawed. Yes. We are so flawed. Oh, my goodness. And you know, isn't the challenge to also recognize whatever the transmission that came through that flawed person was, their flaws don't necessarily negate the value of the entire gift. No, you know, and that's hard. I think a lot of us we're living in a in a time when a, a real catchphrase in our culture is cancel culture. You know, oh, where we learn something about someone. Have you not heard that phrase? No, you learn something about someone, and it's something very upsetting, and it yes. causes you to say, "Let's blot them out completely." Mm, you know, mm. and I think that that's a real challenge. I think those of us in um, in religious life know. Um, from our own uh, experiences with watching some individuals fall from grace and having to say, am I going to reject this entire movement Mm. because an individual was limited? Um, And I don't, I think the danger is to not, we don't want to excuse inexcusable behavior. No. While at the same time, we want to recognize that, well, I think maybe that's why our, our ancestors gave us the phrase, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Oh, yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's, there's a reason for, for all that, but yes, yes but the, you were talking about the gift that those musicians gave us. Yes. And, yeah. I wondered, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, you wanted me to say something concise about the music. I just think it's it's the folk music has become more integral, integrated is what I think I said mm. with um, what was choral music, and and this was really a delight for me. I had struggled. I'm not I'm not a real talented singer or anything, and I you know I'm just kind of ordinary as I keep trying to tell you. Yeah. Um, so I didn't really know how to sing part music and I'm not a soprano so who usually has the melody and so it was kind of a struggle but um by singing in the when there was a separate choir uh very small very very small uh that I sang for I got to learn some of the standard hymns and and actually got to learn the alto part and could sing it it's still you know I still have to learn it it doesn't come too naturally mm. to me, mm. but um, I I think the the four part kind of singing uh, ha- has just melded with the with the folk singing as well. And um, there's there's a lot of really good music out there. Oh, and, there is. Um, and you know what I love about the the masterfulness of of church music ministers is. Uh, they know, and our the current uh, music minister at St. Vincent's is, is well-known in our area, Marie Bernadette. Yes. She's incredibly yes. talented. She actually has a master's degree in um, liturgical music from Santa yes. Clara University. I mean, imagine yes, that. Master's mm-hmm. level liturgical music education. That's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. It, was, it was a hard adjustment when she first came because she was so different from Roger. Sure. Uh, more casual, but, um, you know... I appreciate her. I really appreciate her. She brings, you know, yeah. my music history background. Well, and you know what I think the real masterfulness is of the craft right now is to bring the strands of, of the folk music tradition along with the hymn tradition, along mm-hmm. with this great deposit of devotional music, along with this, you know, new things being written all the time in all sorts of genres. And what yes. I love is, they bring the craftsmanship of four-part harmony and of, you know, really good instrumentation, but always with the knowledge that this must assist the faithful in singing. The assembly is the center. We are not performing. We are facilitating the singing and worshiping of the people in the pews. That's right. Marie's really strong on that. And Father O'Brien was too. Um, he encouraged people, and, and some people that come to St. Vincent's for the first time are really surprised that practically everybody is singing, but it's just really been a big emphasis from from Father Brian, Roger, of course, and, and Marie. That's um, right. So I forget sometimes. <laughs> Every church does that. Oh, it's so true. Sometimes you walk <laughs> into a church that doesn't have that focus, and everyone is politely listening to the choir. Right, and you right. realize, oh, and you know what's so sad for me about that is the choir directors in churches like that are often very pleased with themselves because they have such a beautiful product, so to speak, mm. but they don't recognize that they're actually failing at leader being a leader of worship. Right. You know, right. not that listening can't be an important way of connecting. No, no, we do, we do a little sort of concert. Um, it's, uh, on Christmas before the Christmas for the Christmas Eve mass before it, and we alternate 
traditional hymn singing with special pieces we've prepared that are made mostly for listening. So, you know, we do get a chance to, to do that kind of thing. But for the daily, for the weekly mass, it's strictly in support of the worship. That's, there it is. There it is. And that's, yeah, it's so beautiful. So thank you for bringing your really lived experience, you know, 40 <laughs> years of, of being in the trenches. And I think you're exactly right. And I think our listeners will really appreciate hearing that. Those who, uh, those who have maybe been, been, present for this, but haven't been able to really put their finger on what exactly the movements were that were happening. And I think right. they might recognize what we're saying as being a, a real, a real trend that they can now name. Mm -hmm. You know, Debbie, you, when we talk about 40 years of, of spiritual practice, 40 plus years to nearly 50 years of spiritual practice, one of the things that our spiritual practice is meant to do is to help us meet the challenges of life with faithfulness, yes. with hope, with joy, with perseverance. And and it's interesting, as we talk about those 40 years, you have gone through a lot of physical changes over the course mm -hmm. of those 40 years. And and your your health situation has, has adjusted to the point that now you uh you spend much of your time um experiencing life through through being in a wheelchair. Right. Can you talk to us, Debbie, about First of all, as much as you'd like to tell us about how your health situation changed and, and about that transition for you from being so physically active mm -hmm. to being having to deal with limitations. Well, it, of course, as these things sometimes happen, it, it was gradual. I remember in the kind of the early 2000s, um, you know, I was experiencing some pain kind of in my back and my hip. And, um, and I started limping a little and my doctor said, well, you know, it was arthritis <clears throat> and, um, I was referred and they said, no, it was, you know, I really wasn't a candidate for hip surgery. It really wasn't that bad. So my doctor prescribed some medication, which turned out, um, you know, kind of messed with other things <laughs> mm. in, the, in the long run. But anyway, this, this kind of got worse and worse and um so I finally you know I bought a cane and was just trying to you know cope with it there's a when you first started this part I <clears throat> remembered I had written down um the practice of the presence of God that little book by brother Lawrence that talks about you know trying to be in God's presence all the time no matter what you're doing, whether you're mopping the floor or what you're doing, it's harder than it sounds. Yes. Uh, of course, as everybody who tries it knows. Um, but, you know, I kind of kept on and work got harder. And then sleeping started getting really difficult. And uh, it got to the point where I could only sleep for about 45 minutes before waking up again, being in pain. Mm. So the the doctor <clears throat> prescribed, um, you know, something else. And then uh, the limping got so so painful that one, at the end of one winter, <clears throat> I, I realized, I said, I'm just not going to be able to continue working another winter like this. Mm. It's too dangerous. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of falling. 
and I can't, I had stopped, you know, practically stopped going anywhere or I had to walk more than, you know, 50 or a hundred feet mm. at one time. Mm. It just, it just hurt too much. And, um, I should mention this wasn't just arthritis. This was, they diagnosed me with, um, spinal stenosis and severe scoliosis now, scoliosis may be a word other people have heard of. It's a curvature of the spine. And when I was in seventh grade, um, they had diagnosed this uh, in me. And all through eighth grade, I wore um, a brace, a back brace, ah. which I absolutely hated. Mm. And I I wonder if it did much good, but of course, maybe it, it would have been worse if not. But it was sort of like uh when you watch those english um period piece movies and the women are in these tight corsets oh, it was, oh. it was so, sort of like that um so anyway i wore it for a year and that was that and the really for many years the only problem i had was that um someone had to hem my skirts because if i just turned them up uh they wouldn't hang right, you know, because one hip was higher than the other. Mm. Um, but apparently, you know, at, as you age, um, it gets much worse. And and uh, spinal stenosis is a, a narrowing of the spinal canal that's sort of like pinched nerves all the time. So that was kind of difficult to deal with. And I finally decided <clears throat> that I had to get um, a wheelchair or a scooter that I couldn't, I just couldn't continue working uh, without something. And that was a hard decision to make because that yes. really puts you in a spotlight. Yes. And I remember how awful it was that <clears throat> that fall, so I got a van also, um, that fall to go to a wedding of uh, a young member of the folk group and someone came who hadn't been, been back for a while and at the reception, he came over and he said, oh, Debbie, what happened to you? <laughs> and that was, doesn't feel good. No, very public. Um, so, you know, I had to da -da -da explain. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I would I would try keeping up some walking, but it was just it was just too painful. And, um, any of our listeners who know someone who's had spinal stenosis, I, I just mm. have heard being a priest and, and, and walking with people through different things. It sounds like from my experience talking to folks, it's among the most painful things. Most of us know back pain is just terrible to begin yeah, with, but yeah. that nerve pain. And, and when you describe the narrowing of that canal so that your, mm -hmm. your nerves are being pinched constantly. Yes. Yeah, it's more, it's funny because uh, the mother of a friend of mine kept asking me, how's your back? And I really, I shouldn't have done this, but for quite a while I would say, well, it's not my back that hurts, it's my legs. Because that's, that was mostly where the pain was. It radiates mm. down into your legs. Mm. And, and, um, and sleeping became so hard that I couldn't sleep in a bed anymore. And oh. I unfortunately and i sometimes i dream about sleeping in a bed um, because oh. i was i was a good sleeper yeah. i loved you know i loved my sleep um so I, I you know i have to sleep in the recliner 
And um, so the times I've had to be in the hospital have been terrible mm. because of, because of that. I just I say you have to get me a recliner. I can't I I can't stay in the bed. I just can't. It's too so, awful. Yeah. So I'm on pain medication, which now is causing its own problems because. As all the publicity says in the newspapers, um, doctors really didn't know how dangerous it was to prescribe all this pain medication to people. And um, but you can't just stop it. You can't just stop it. So yes. that's been that's been hard to deal with. And I I pray a lot. I pray a lot. Talk um, to us about that because, yeah, that people go to pain management clinics and try mm -hmm. to figure out how to manage pain. Mm -hmm. And I know that when I speak with people of faith, they talk about the role of prayer. What, yes. How does prayer interact with your pain? Well, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Um, I, you know, I, I pray all the time to be relieved of some of it. You know, I'm not asking for it to be taken away. I just want to be able to continue doing what I do um, in, in serving God and being friends. I have a wonderful support group of friends. Um, Roger is now a reverend <laughs> yes. in, a different, in a different denomination. Um, and he's just, he's been a wonderful support. Uh, and, and he's maintained wife. great friendliness with the Catholic faith still. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. And in fact, as you know, he's a good friend of Joan Horgan's, and she was at his church last Sunday morning. That's right. Give, giving, I don't know if you've seen it. I have fabulous. seen it. For those of us who are listening, uh, Joan Horgan is the uh, director of spiritual life at the College of St. Rose, where she's been for almost 30 years. She's right. an incredible spiritual leader. And actually, some of uh, the listeners from St. Patrick's and St. Mary's will remember that she has come to accompany me for some homilies at our churches. Yes, yes. So, I, I only recently discovered that when I went back uh, and looked at some of St. Patrick's um, online live stream. <laughs> yeah, she's a marvelous faith leader. She truly is. And she's a great example of, uh, you know, a lay Catholic woman who is a true leader in church, you know, something oh, yes. that, yeah, we need to see. And it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. But, but you were saying now that, uh, going back, going um, back to the, the independence that you want to have you, all of you, you want to be able to stay connected to those friendships, to those activities, to being worship, you know, worshiping in church, leading the music mm -hmm. as you do. Well, I don't lead, but ah! I follow. <laughs> Tell me about the van that you have, because I'm fascinated. You, many, many people who are um, in a wheelchair depend on others to provide transportation. You right. do not. Tell us well, about I that. Yeah. I mean, I don't have anybody. Um, my, this close group of friends, uh, Roger and Martha, and, um, well, their daughter, actually, is part of our little group. Yeah. But the rest of them are... are closer to my generation, um, they all have other things. Some of them are still working, uh, and they have, they have other commitments. So I can't expect them to, to do everything or, or much for me. I don't like to ask them to do a lot. Um, just when I really, really need it. Um, and I, I miss meeting with them, but anyway, the first thing I got was a 
kind of a do-it-yourself. It had a, a swing arm hoist in the back that I had to connect the wheelchair to and then uh, crank it into the van. And then I walked around to the driver's seat and got in. But then I had an accident with it. And even though I didn't see how it could be considered totals, well, I just didn't know. And it I was, was not injured. It was declared total. And I couldn't afford, you know, I had, by that point, I had had to stop working. It just got to be too much to continue working. I was considered um, an associate professor, you know, in the, but in the library. And um, we had started doing more teaching in the classroom. Uh, I had to serve on faculty committees, which I had continued to do, and and be on two campuses sometimes in a single day, and it just got to be too too much. And um, they they instituted at Sage they instituted a program where you signed uh, a three year agreement. Uh, you could work part time. You could choose what percent of part time you worked, but at the end of three years, you would be retired. So, unfortunately, I had to take that, and that was much earlier than I had ever thought I yes. would be retired. Yeah. Um, so, that was hard. But anyway, then I was without a, a van for a couple of years because I didn't have the money to buy even a used one. You wouldn't believe how expensive they are. Incredibly, incredibly, incredibly expensive. I had promised myself that... If I ever had to get another one, I would get one where I didn't have to do this nonsense of, you know, attaching it to a hoist and walking around to get in the driver's side, that I would drive right in a ramp. So it took a lot of saving, a lot of saving, and, and using savings that I had to, to purchase that. And that's what I have now. You drive um, right in the back. Yep. Yep. Wow. Now, I, I didn't have the driver's seat taken out, which uh, a lot of people do in these circumstances, because I figured if someone else had to drive it with me being in it, I didn't want to do that. Uh. <clears throat> so I have to transfer from the wheelchair into the driver's seat, which is really not a problem. But there have been some problems with the van. And um, during the time I didn't have it, I used the Starbus system. Uh, the capital area is is very lucky to have this as a possibility yes. from CDTA, Correct. the little yeah. buses. But they don't go everywhere. No. And they don't go everywhere at all times. I can't, uh, with Star, I can't get to my pharmacy on weekends. Oh. Um, you know, so I've had to ask for, for help a couple of times. Um, so it's not... You know, it, it's a blessing, but it doesn't solve all the problems if you're without it. And there have been some problems with the van. Uh, I had a lot of problems with the um, with the hatch and the ramp at one point, uh, just just a short couple of years ago, and it, it it made me crazy. Yeah, I couldn't. I had to I had to find someone to come, and once I drove in, they had to physically close lift up the ramp and close the hatch for me. Um, After you saved so much money for so long. Yes. Yeah, yes. the frustration. Oh. There was a lot of frustration. So back to, to prayer. I mean, I, I just, 
<laughs> I do pray all the time. I, I, you know, it's kind of a simple child's prayer in a way. It's like, Lord, help me, help me, um, help me stand the pain, um, help me pray for other people too, and not just think of myself, and um, just help help me get through this. Yeah. That's, that's really a lot of what it is. There is a book uh, by an author I love, Anne Lamott, and she said, essentially in life, there are three prayers. Help, oh. thanks, and mm -hmm. wow. <laughs> Isn't that she's so right. true? That's true. I, I know the name, but I haven't read her. Oh, um, she's really, yeah. That, and so she says, thank you is what you say to God so yes. often when you're grateful. Um, help is what you say so mm -hmm. often because that's what life, that's what we need the most. Yes, and is. wow is when we're watching Mars or we're listening <gasps> to yes. Beethoven or we're at, at mass and the choir and we are all singing together and we, wow. Thank you, God. Yeah. Wow. There's, there's two, there's two wow songs I want to mention, um, that are so important to me. One is by, a. uh, I guess a folklorist, you might call her in Vermont, um, Mary Alice Amidon, and this one song. I don't, I don't know if she penned the melody, because I don't think she wrote the words. Uh, but uh, it's called "I Still Have Joy." Ah. I still, I still have joy. I still have joy after all the things I've been through. I still have joy. Um, it's, it's just very, you know. That that's that says a lot of it. You, I think you asked before about a mantra, um, and that that's sort of it in many ways. And um, things like how can I keep from singing? That's a oh. that's a that's a big one. No storm and, can shake my inmost calm, inmost calm, while to that rock I'm clinging. Since Absolutely. love is Lord of heaven and earth. How can I keep, can from, I keep singing? from singing? <laughs> yes. Yeah, really. That that just means so much. And then, um, especially after my mother died in 88, uh, and we sang We Shall Rise Again, I couldn't, uh, I'm not an emotional person, but I couldn't sing that without tearing up, um, especially the fifth verse, At the Door to Greet Us martyrs, angels, and saints, and our family and loved ones, everyone freed from their chains. Uh, it just, we uh, shall feel, feel we the will, acceptance uh, and the joy of new life. I, I just, we shall um, join in the gathering, reunited in God's love. Re, isn't it a, that verse, do you know I have chosen that song as the closing for my own funeral? Really? I'm yes. not surprised. Those, yeah. Isn't it just remarkable? It's, it's and a then, wonderful song. and then, for everyone, after singing that fifth verse, to sing together, we shall we rise shall again, again on the last day, day with the faithful, rich and rich poor, and coming to the house of Lord Jesus. We will find an open door there. We shall find an open door. Oh. And, that, and that 
that's followed by a page of hallelujahs <laughs> the last time. Oh, isn't it? Jo- oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. Those, those two songs mean a lot to me and say a lot to me. Oh. We lost, we also lost, there's been, there's been a lot of loss. We lost, um, our organist that I mentioned came, Jim Masso, um, and he became, you know, like the second in command to, to Rogers, uh, conducting, but he contracted AIDS Mm. and was one of the ones that treatments didn't work. Mm. And he died in the early nineties. And I was completely heartbroken. We had gotten very close. I used to go and watch him practice the organ. I used to watch his feet because <laughs> it was so fascinating. We have a beautiful pipe organ that's hardly, hardly ever used. Marie, Marie knows to play it a little, but um, I used to watch him with his feet in his socks. <laughs> yes, <laughs> playing, right. Playing the pedals. Oh, it is. It's the the miracle of that gift, the miracle of it. You know, Debbie, we, uh, we're almost out of time, so I just would love to, to end with a couple of questions that I've asked all of our guests, and you can just let me sure. know, you know what your response might be to these. You've been through a lot in your life. You've shared mm. so much of it with us. Many people make sense of life with the belief that everything happens for a reason. And other people say that God doesn't make things happen. God is just with us to help us accept whatever does happen. Where do you stand on that? Hmm. Well, I think, I don't really think everything happens for a reason. I think um, God has given us our intelligence and our senses and our ability to make choices and plan for ourselves know really for the most part and he's he's around to guide us i know this it's hard to make sense of of children dying and the pain in the world and everything but i I don't think there's a um inanimate reason in the universe that makes things happen Mm. I, i don't think i can say that You know, I think some people maybe feel that if you don't believe that everything happens for a reason, it could mean that you don't trust God. But that's, Mm. that's not, those are separate categories. Yeah, I I think they are. I really think they are. You have endured through many things. You've endured through um, the changing of our culture as a, Mm. as a, in a society, but also our church. We've talked about some of those changes you've seen. You've had to let the past go in order to make room for what's next. And you've also had to endure um, the, the pain of spinal stenosis and scoliosis. You've had to endure so much. What do you think is the key to enduring? When there's something in your life that you can't change, what's the key to enduring it? Mm, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty big question. Um, hmm. I think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to quote a song again. Mm. Um, it's, it's the, I still have joy song. The, The first verse goes, there are times in my life when I felt I couldn't go on, but the Lord, he blessed me and he made me strong. 
I keep the faith and I hold on through the night. This is my testimony. He'll make everything all right. I just, it's, I don't know. It's faith. It's that faith of stepping out when you can't, you can't see what's there. Oh. I, I don't know how to explain it. Oh, you're a- doing a beautiful job. It's, <laughs> I mean, you're saying, yes. I mean, how noble it is to step out in trust when you don't know what's there. It's, it's hard. I remember having a conversation with a priest um, when it came to joy, actually formally joining the Catholic Church, being confirmed, and I was hesitating. This is right before the RCIA, I'll be quick, uh, before the RCA came into formal being, and um, Father Brian assigned an assistant priest to meet with four of us who had an evangelical background and wanted to join the church. So he met with us twice and he said, you guys have a lot of Bible learning. You don't, you don't need, you don't need any teaching from me. Why don't we do this next Sunday? And (laughs) so two, two of the people said, sure. And I said, um, wait a minute. (laughs) So I went and talked to a a priest Mm. and, um, that's one thing we talked about. It's just a step of faith. You don't know that there's something underneath your feet, but it's just something you have to do. And and I did. Uh, about two months later, at Christmas time, I had my own mass, which was lovely, uh, with the folk group and uh, Father O'Brien, and I was confirmed. Oh, but, um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's... Uh, isn't there a French philosopher that says there's a God-shaped hole in everybody's heart? Oh, I love, I, I have, I don't know who that's attributed to. I always thought it was Celtic, but I love it. Oh, you might know, you might be right. I just always thought that came from the Celts, but maybe it's from, from a friend. There is a God-shaped hole and only God can fill it. And only God can fill it. Like a key in a lock. You, if you put the wrong shaped key into a lock, it won't turn it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, don't you think that's what so many of us, you know, that's, I think the definition of addiction when we're trying to put, you know, alcohol or some, anything, any comfort in the lock. Anything. Yeah. Anything. Oh, yes. God alone fits that. Yes. It's so true. Last question, Debbie, is about the yes. times we're in now, because the reason this podcast began was because oh. all of us were facing this, this pandemic. None yes. of us had been alive for anything like it before. And what turned out to be a two-week, what we thought would be a two-week lockdown, thought, yeah. has turned into at least. I mean, we're a year in, and there's no. It's, a year. it's we've we're a year right now. We're we're mm-hmm. in. This is being recorded in March, and uh, this weekend we will celebrate the one year since the very last time we ever gathered for yes. church. You know, oh. so so what I'm wondering, for, for you've been through plenty. Um, and I love that you say you're just, you're just an ordinary person, which I love. It goes to show how beautiful God is, that God makes every ordinary person so amazing. But talk to me, what would you like to see as a, as a, a great outcome from what we've been through um, with coronavirus? What are your best hopes for what life after coronavirus could be like? Well, I would hope, especially with all the terrible things that have happened within coronavirus, that people would see how important it is to love one another 
or at least be tolerant of one another. Mm. This has been very upsetting, uh, everything that's gone on with the world. And I, I thought it was scary when I was growing up in the 60s and we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. Um, but in, in, in some ways, this is scarier mm. that people are so divided. I think, why, why? Mm. Why, why can't people see that we, we can't hate? There's, there's just no room for hate in the world. We'll destroy ourselves. Yeah. So I, I, I would just hope that there would be more understanding of people. Amen. People Amen. understanding each other. You know, it was funny. The last, the last crisis that we faced that felt life-changing as a whole society might maybe was um, September 11th where there was a yes. certain day you couldn't you couldn't avoid paying attention to and oh. i'm struck that the the mantra that got us through that one was united we stand mm. and mm. we have not brought the exact same attitude to this challenge we've been no. we haven't chosen union and um i think there's i agree with you i think there's great possibility for us to learn from some of the uh the missed opportunities that we're having yes. right now missed yes. opportunities. Mm -hmm. So, yes. Well, Debbie, what I'd like to do before we conclude is just give our, our listeners a chance for some quiet, just a, a moment of quiet reflection. I would mm -hmm. love to ask all of you just to take a second and savor what you've heard today from this woman who's uh, shared with us so much, so many decades of life experience. What was it that, that stood out to you from this conversation that you'd like to feast on? Are you are you thinking at all about that that conversation where we said that one can practice being in the presence of God all the time? The practice of the presence of God means always being aware that God is there, even during a sleepless night, even in the midst of pain and worry. Could you hear how music was such a doorway for Debbie to God throughout this entire journey? What's what's your doorway? to God. Is it music? Is it something else? What is your doorway to be able to experience the divine? Debbie realizes that there was a spiritual openness in her from the very beginning. That was where her joy came from. That's where her spirit of wondering came from. Were you struck with that awareness that maybe if there's someone in your life who might seem to be not that spiritual, might their joy be the way that they're expressing their spirituality? Might their wondering and their dreaming about life be a doorway for them? Debbie said that the prayer that she prays the most is help. How can you develop a more trusting relationship with God where you can Trust that if you, if you call out for help, God will listen. What music lyrics speak to your story? Debbie and I have already picked out our, our funeral songs because they speak so beautifully to us. What, what would sum up your way of looking at life? How can you use that to bring strength and hope into the regular, ordinary days of life? Debbie, on behalf of all of our listeners, I thank you so much for sharing so generously with us. We will be thinking of you on your 
continuing journey and sharing it with you on our own spiritual path. And may, may God bless you in all of the challenges that you're facing and in all of the joys that still lay ahead. Thank you for joining oh, us. Thank you, Father. And thank you to all of our listeners. God bless you all.